All right, well, I am glad to be back, and I'm not a big fan of this microphone, but um, I'm loud enough usually. But um, for I think I know probably most people. There are some people I don't know. Um, if you don't know me, it's because I'm a back row Baptist. I kind of like to sit on the back in the second service. But um, I am a charter member of uh, River and started at the very beginning and back when it was the Dandelion, even before River started and we were at the Dandelion. Um, If you don't know me, I've spent, I was adding it up last night when I was on the plane and um, I was like, you know, there comes a time where you're saying, I've been in the business for 25 years or I've been in the business for 30 years. And then I'm like, I got up to 33 last night and I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to like over 30 years. And I'm just going to keep it at that, because otherwise I have to convince you that I started when I was 12 or something, but, which in a way I did. Um, I grew up in a family where my folks took foster kids my whole life, and so, and those brothers and sisters are my brothers and sisters. Back then, uh, foster care was long-term, and one of them at 50 years old just moved back in with my mom and dad. Um, I mean, part of it, he's very helpful, but his life had really gone through some transitions and he needed to come back home. And that's the kind of amazing home that I grew up in. And so in some ways I did start when I was like nine years old, but professionally I've worked with six to 12 year olds who were um, back then called SED, severely emotionally disturbed. And if they didn't make it with us, they then were taken to <clears throat> Topeka uh, State Hospital, which they don't do that anymore. Um, I worked at drug and alcohol um, treatment for adolescents. I was a drug and alcohol counselor for about four and a half years. And then I had the great pleasure um, of being at the Wichita Children's Home for 23 years. And I coordinated the street outreach program um, and a couple other programs, Safe Place program, for about 20 years there. And then um, since... Um, the end of October, I've been at Wichita State University with the Center for Combating Human Trafficking. And um, so that's a little bit about me. I will tell you, I'm not a clinical person. I'm glad we have James. Um, but my background, I have a bachelor's degree in human services from Fringe University. Um, and um, my whole life has been direct service and supervising and developing programming to meet the needs of kids at some of their roughest times in their life. And so when I talk to you today, um, my job at the center and my job throughout the last part of my career is to take something that's clinical, to take an evidence-based practice, to take a effective and effective practice and make it so us as lay people, my employees that I used to um, uh, supervise, so they can understand it. And then to be able to take that and say, how do we put that into our programs so it makes sense? Because all of us have probably been to workshops or been to school, and you're like, holy cow, how do I get that into real practice? How do I take it to small group? Um, and we're going to talk about change today. And I'm going to tell you, I've been with River Um, from the beginning, and probably most of the most significant positive changes I've made have been at River. And um, probably times that Terry's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it with this girl. But um, there was times I didn't know if I was going to make it, but this was my home, and this was my safe place. And when I worked with the kids that I worked with out on the street, um, there's something about having a group of people 
that I knew if my life fell apart, I could walk into River and I would have a multitude of people who would show up and help me. And that's the power of our small groups. Because to work with people in desperate situations, when they make every decision knowing they got nothing, if this falls apart, you live life a lot differently. And so the value and the importance of our small groups um, can't be measured in words or in numbers. Um, So um, my job today is to talk about change. And you have a handout um, here that we're going to be looking at and kind of going through. And um, I really want, it's a a challenge to say how in an hour, a little less than an hour, can we have you walk away with something that really is usable. And so hopefully when you leave, you'll have um, kind of the opportunity to walk away at three different levels. So I'm going to be giving you like a beginner, beginner level. You're like, I can do that. Um, And then it's graduated up there, um, a couple of things. So you have one of the sheets on here um, that I'm going to wait for just a second. I want you guys to think about what are some of the issues And what are some of the problems that you see in small groups that, shoot, doesn't have to be small groups. It can be living life and people that you love and you care about. What are issues and problems that come up in our relationships and in small group? Marriage problems. problems. Addiction. Addiction. And there's all kinds of addiction. There's addiction to pornography. There's addiction to substances. There's addiction to people. All kinds of addiction. What else? Aging. Mm -hmm. For some of us at River now, that's kind of like, used to be that wasn't really much of an issue at River. Now, yeah. Say again? Guilt and shame. Yeah. Somebody said something back here. Stress. Oh, yeah. Parent-child stress. Work. Anything else? Even just relationships. Somebody in a relationship with somebody that is not healthy. Maybe abusive. Anybody dealt with domestic violence in their groups? No? That's good. That's a good thing. Okay? Um, If you look at your handout, there's a sheet that looks like this. And one of the things um, I think it's important to know is that we at the center um, really believe in holistic care and responding to people knowing that there's all these different dimensions. And so if you look at the circles, the the thing I really just want you to um, focus on are these eight circles right here. And all of us have these parts of our life. And I will tell you, in the work that I've done my whole life, we have a tendency to neglect the spiritual part. And in the church, sometimes we neglect the other parts of people. And realizing that when they come into group, um, that they're bringing all these areas of their lives. I think River probably does this and lives beside people um, better than most Um, but I think it's really important for us to know that when people walk through our doors and come and sit in our homes for small group that they bring there's physical issues there's intellectual there's financial 
there's vocational, there's social, there's creative, marriage and family, emotional. And so um, I'm not sure why we don't have spiritual in there, but it is in there um, because um, part of Karen's model, and if uh, you guys don't know, I work for Dr. Um, Karen Countryman Roseworm, um, spirituality is a big part of recovery when you look with people, uh, look at people who have been involved in a lot of trauma, um, and she focuses a lot on there. So um, when we look at those eight dimensions, I think that starts to look at all the areas that we have available to us that change may occur. And that's what we're talking about today is change. And um, if you look at the... Um, what we do in small group, it's about transformation. I don't know how many people were here years ago when Jim Presnell went through transformation and went through year, years. It wasn't years. It was really good. It was months of talking about transformation, and that's what change is. And um, our job is um, to know and love God and to make him known. And the more that we know God, um, hopefully sanctification is happening, changing is happening, transformation is happening. Um, and so when we look at change... Um, we're going to look at how does a person change. Um, we really believe, and the stages of change model really believes, that nobody just wakes up one morning and is changed, that there's this process that happens. And so um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Our goals today um, is we are going to talk a little bit about stages of change and am I, when you leave here, if I had done a pre-test, post-test, hopefully you'll be able um, to leave here really having some um, usable knowledge with that and to provide you with practical things that you can use in group. Um, how many people have heard of stages of change? Okay. How about motivational interviewing? Okay. How many people have been trained in stages of change in motivational interviewing? Come on down. <laughs> okay. How many people have never heard of it before in their life? Okay. Awesome. Okay. Um, there's a, um, these are my two, two of my favorite practices. And one of the things I want you to know is just in a big old toolkit of ways that you can respond with people um, and have things in mind, these are a couple of those practices, um, a couple of those um, things that you can look at to put in your toolbox. Now, they're probably two of my favorite. One, because I've done street outreach for so long, and you're often working with people who don't um, want to change or don't think they can change um, and sometimes so busy surviving they don't really know how to navigate um, that change. Um, it's also both of these models are very relational and in small group we are about relationship. Okay, And um, I think James set it up very well. James set it up very well. Did he leave? Oh, no, there he is. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, relationship is important and one of the things when I used to train staff is if you don't have relationship um, it's going to be difficult for you to really engage people um, that was most of our job was engagement around street outreach and, and families and youth that were in crisis I also um, I haven't totally tested this out but I think God and the Holy Spirit probably made up stages of change and motivational interviewing. Because if you look at how the Holy Spirit works in your life and how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of people in our church and in our small group, it really comes in um, increments. There are things that I hear from the Holy Spirit that I'm going, oh, and it kind of moves me to the next stage. And I'm going, 
I remember being tired and driving to church one day. This is probably um, seven or eight years ago. And um, I was just tired of being tired. And there, you do need to take care of yourself, and there needs to be rest. But I was just keep thinking, you know, I'm going to just get out of this and blah, blah, blah. And um, I heard clear as day the Holy Spirit say, do you really want to get to heaven well-rested? That was an aha moment. And it wasn't about depleting yourself because you don't want to do that either. But it's about perspective. And the Holy Spirit really put a thought in my head at that point that helped me go, huh. So I, if I change my perspective about that, then it starts to change my behavior. And yes, I am going to care for myself, but is my goal really to not do anything and just not engage with people and not get worn out? Sometimes we are going to live hard. This is not our home. And um, we want to work as hard as we can here for our eternal home. Um, so please don't misunderstand me. You do need to take care of yourself because I could do a whole workshop on self-care and why that's important when you can't bend your neck and you live life like this. So, okay. Um, okay. Um, we're going to do four things today. We're going to learn about the six stages of change. Um, we are going to know how to respond and know how to notice where somebody is in that stage of change. Um, we're going to learn some really basic MI principles and skills and then we're going to, you guys are going to be challenged by choice. You get to pick one of the three levels at which um, you're going to be able to walk out of here um, and be able to take that to move forward. So we talked about stages of change um, really being about change as a process, not an event. Stages of change is really about recognizing where somebody is in the stages of change. And when you recognize where they are in the stages of change, you then know how to respond. Because if I don't pay attention where somebody is in the stages of change, then if I respond like they're way down the road over here, I'm probably going to lose them. If somebody's sitting in your group um, and um, they're starting to talk about an issue and you respond like they're ready to do something about it, you're going to lose them probably. Okay? So get out your sheet and let's look at the first um, sheet on here. We're going to walk through these stages of change. So in this first column over here, these are the six stages of change that probably all of us um, go through. And I think um, it's really good to think of something. I want you guys to think in your head of some big change you've made in your life. Okay? And as we walk through this, or watching somebody you love or somebody in your group make a change, I want you to think about when you saw yourself in these um, areas. So the first one is pre-contemplation. And in the stage of pre-contemplation, somebody doesn't even, they're not even interested in changing. So they may um, walk into group and they may have heard this was a really cool place to be and that people really love you here. And they may come in with a set of values and some behaviors that are very different. And they're not even, maybe they're, um, Maybe they're living um, in a relationship that um, probably the Bible would not condone, okay? And so they come and sit in your group. But for them, they don't see anything as an issue in that area, okay? So they're in pre-contemplation when they walk in that door. If somebody is an alcoholic and they have no desire to change whatsoever, they're in pre-contemplation. But there's a few different reasons you can be in pre-contemplation. You can be there because you're just like, I know I shouldn't be doing it, but forget you all. I don't care. I can do it if I want to, and I have no intentions of changing. 
And then there are people who have tried to change in the past, and they feel completely hopeless. And they're like, I've tried it. I can't do it anymore. Change is not for me. It's just not going to happen. Okay? Um, So that's pre-contemplation. If you look at contemplation, um, and I'm going to tell you, here's what I want you to know. There's a big continuum of wins in the stages of change. We're all looking for the big win. Like, oh my gosh, that they walk in and they said, I moved in in a different apartment. I really have rededicated my life to Jesus. Um, I'm really reading my Bible every day. I'm really engaging in the church and really listening to what God has. That's the big win, right? But there's a bunch of other wins before. As when they leave group one day and they were loved and they listened to what the Bible um said and what they were studying and they walk out and you interacted with them in a way that they walk out going huh maybe maybe I need to come back here and listen some more maybe the direction I'm going in my life is not a great direction that's contemplation that's a big win an example of that is I was meeting with a um, survivor of human trafficking in jail That's a long story of why she was in jail and shouldn't have been. But um, I was going to meet with her. And when I first started meeting with her, um, a lot of bragging about the life and what she did out there. And there's lots of reasons for that. But I sat and listened to her and I was saying, clearly she's in pre-contemplation because she's bragging a lot about um, what they did and what was going on and where she'd been and how she ran away from the system and all those kinds of things. And I was like, hmm, I've heard a lot of good things. Did anything bad ever happen? And so she starts to tell me this whole thing about, oh my gosh, I was um, taken like um, from one community and they put something in my drink. I woke up in another community. I didn't even know what community I was in. And a guy was trying to brand me tattoo his name on my neck, um, you know, involved in the whole trafficking thing. And she was kind of laughing it off and that kind of stuff. And lots of themes of her being able to take care of herself. And she got out of that. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, that's bad. And um, I said, so so what's your line in the sand? A couple conversations later, I said, so if you were going to walk away from sexual exploitation, human trafficking, all that whole life, What's your line in the sand? What, what would get you to the point to say, I am so out of there, I am not doing that anymore. And she goes, well, if I was ever kidnapped. And she stopped. So you see how she went from pre-contemplation to starting to walk into contemplation at that moment because she stopped herself and she says, whoa, that was my line in the sand and I have been kidnapped. Okay, so that's how pre-contemplation can happen. You'll see it in their eyeballs. You'll see it in a comment that maybe they'll stop. You'll see it because maybe they start saying, man, I really hate this side of it. I really hate having to, I guess you probably won't have a whole lot of people in your group running from the police, but um, you might, you never know. But if they start to look at some downsides of their behavior, and it's like, you know, I really don't, I feel guilty. I feel like this is going on. I feel, that's starting to get into, into contemplation. And contemplation is they're sitting on the fence. They're ambivalent. They're weighing their benefits and their costs. But here's the problem is 
a lot of times we get so excited for change that we're like, oh, they see the bad side. So now we're ready to have them move out of their, you know, their girlfriend's house. Or, okay, I can have somebody here tonight to get you into treatment. Are you ready to go? And sometimes because of relationship, they want to please us so much, they're ready to get in and go, right? And um, they're not ready to go yet because they're still contemplating because there's a part of them that's still living over here and there's a part of them that's still living over here, okay? The next stage is preparation. And by the way, this doesn't mean they're ready to go or move out yet. It means they're preparing for it. So they're figuring out how to change. They're preparing to make a change. They're making plans or testing waters. So maybe they even start looking for apartments. Maybe they start talking to somebody in small group and somebody in small group says, you know what, we got a group of um, guys that have a house over here. You can move in with us. That's preparation. Okay? Maybe if they have a drug and alcohol problem, they maybe go for an assessment. And so they start looking at, do I need outpatient? Do I need inpatient? Do I not need any of those? Um, Because I'm a big believer that not everybody needs treatment, even though I worked in treatment. I'm with James. Not everybody needs treatment. So um, then there's a step that we all want, which is action. And this is when um, they say, okay. And so maybe that person moves out of their house, out of the house with their girlfriend. Okay? And group really helps them walk through from that. Hopefully, maybe engaging the girl in a, an, another small group or another community um, of believers that can help um, the girl walk through that. Um, but really saying, in my group, this is my guy. How can we help him walk through that? Now, this does not mean that they're going to be perfect at it. It means they're starting to make, they're actually making the change. Okay? This is a very vulnerable time when they've made the change. Because how many times do we make changes and we go back? How many times do we get on a diet and we um, are like, this is it this time, um, and it doesn't make it? How many times? Does anybody know how many times somebody leaves a domestic violence situation before they leave for good? What's the average amount of times? Yep. Ding. Yes, seven times is the average amount of times. So if you're in a small group with somebody that um, is in a domestic violence relationship and you're like, dang girl, we've been through this three times with you. If you approach it that way, it's probably not going to be as helpful as we want it to be. Okay? Because we know that there's the stages of change. They know the pros and the cons. But sometimes um, the cons are just too hard. Um, I think one of the things, James talked about empathy. Empathy is a really important part of stages of change and uh, motivational interviewing. And people really, um, I, I worked with people who lived in desperation a lot. And people would look at our homeless kids and say, they just need to get a job. And that's absolutely right. We want them to have employment. But imagine if you woke up every morning and everything you owned was in a plastic bag, and you didn't sleep anywhere that was yours last night, you slept on the floor, or you had to have sex with somebody in order to have a place to stay, and you didn't know where you were going to stay that night, and so you're walking on the street, and you're trying to figure out where you're going to stay, and where you're going to store yourself with, and who do I align myself with that I keep myself safe that night, and how do I get something to eat, and I still have these needs to love and to be loved, 
and to belong and to be valuable and to be respected. If we see, if we jump in and say, I'm going to try to see in my head from their world, then suddenly things make a lot of difference. And that's a really important part of stages of change and motivational interviewing. If I'm working with a mom and say, you just need to leave him because this is going on and this is going on and there's... But then she's going to be homeless with her family because she's got nowhere to go or you're asking her to go stay in a shelter. Would you go stay in a shelter? Um, and, and, And considering all those things. So when you're talking about action and somebody comes to group and you're like, you're feeling high because they went home, they made all those changes, and then the next week they come back and they're struggling again. Um, and whether that be pornography or whatever it is, um, that action time is a very vulnerable time. So if somebody is making that big leap, sometimes that's where we really need to try to figure out what kinds of res- um, support that we can offer. Um, and then if you look at... Um, the next page, maintenance. This is, this is what we're looking for. This is when they're able to maintain and make it a regular part of, part of their life. Terry has always said the new normal. Like you'll never get back to that normal like when a, a certain event happens, but you'll find a new normal. This is the new normal. So when we work with um, youth involved and in, in adults involved in trafficking, um, one of the big things when they move from victim to survivor to thriver is they have to learn to live regular life because nothing about their life was regular. And so when you look at those eight dimensions, you have to look at that in all of those areas. Okay, um, But this is a time where you really um, are able to see them. They may start developing new relationships. So now they're coming to group and they're wanting to have more and more involvement in the church. They may um, show up at everything that the church is open for. Um, there's a um, guy here in Wichita that was in prison for actually killing his best friend. And um, he was in the jail cell and it was before the court date and he was trying to figure out how to hang himself in, in his jail cell and he looked up and there was a Bible um, underneath the television and he took it out and it was a Bible for prisons and he opened it up and it had how to become a Christian and his life was completely different after that and everything was about being involved and being immersed and he showed up at Bible studies, and he hung out with people. He changed who he was hanging out with. He changed all those dimensions of his life, okay? That's, that's how you get to maintenance, is you maintain that change over time, and you start to look at all those areas of your life, and how do those um, support that change? And then, unfortunately, we have reoccurrence. Some people would call it um, relapse. Um, when we talk about trafficking at the center, Um, We don't call it um, relapse. We call it uh, recurrence. And that's when somebody has gone back to their old patterns. And I will tell you, small group leaders, it's really easy at that point to say, especially after the second or third time, this is it. Um, And even in your mind, you may not say it out loud, but in your mind, you kind of check out a little bit, right? We're kind of all there. Um, or probably have been there. Um, this is the time that you really have an opportunity. Um, in working in crisis for as long as I have, crises are an opportunity to engage back in and say, what's working, what's not working? 
Um, and really looking at, um, because most people who work in the crisis field will tell you that's an opportunity. Somebody probably will listen to you more in the middle of a crisis than they will at any other time because they are desperate at that time, okay? Um, and so what we do with that um, is going to be really important because if it becomes a bunch of I told you so's, then um, it's, it may not be as helpful as we want it to be, okay? Um, so now um, we're going to look at, um, well, I'm going to ask you a question. So looking at these six stages of change, so we've got pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and recurrence. Um, if we don't understand that change happens in stages, what's the danger of that? Mm-hmm. People will close down. Mm-hmm. What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're going to be more, and resistant is a really good word. And if you look at a lot of the MI and stages of change thing, um, and we'll look at it in a minute, it really is. Um, you will have, in fact, resistance in this kind of practice and learning these is a sign that we need to come up with a different um, um, response. We need to kind of back off and kind of relook at things. Because the last thing you want is somebody to kind of get their dander up uh, because then they shut down everything. And sometimes it's just saying, okay, you know, if, with kids I worked with, you could even say, you know, I know I'm seeing that it's just not time for you yet. You're just not ready um, to make that change yet. And that's okay. You're important to us. We want you to come in the doors. If you're hungry, please come in. And it was through that process that kids would then come, out, come in on a bad day and say, can I talk to you about what you were talking to me about the other day? All right? What's another danger of not really realizing where somebody is in a stage of change? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Felicia. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that does, I mean, the, kind of the hardest things in the world is um, to get involved in group life and become cynical, to be that human service worker or that social worker that ends up becoming cynical. So now you're the person that's like, next. You know, that's one of the things I teach to when I supervise staff and when I train other people, one of the worst things you can do. Yes, I worked at the Wichita Children's Home and we had 2,000 kids who would come through our doors a day. Uh, Not a day, holy cow. (laughs) A year. (laughs) God save us from that. Um, And it's really easy to go like, next, I've seen, you know, what, 800 runaways this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you may not say it like that, but we, we encounter people in business all the time whether it be medical, hospitals. Um, And one of the things we trained about is this is this person's maybe worst day of their life today. And yes, we've had 10 people this week that it was the worst day of their life. But we're going to show up every day um, like this is our first time with that. And I think we have to do that in small group too. Okay? And when we recognize where people are in in the change, we become less cynical. We can say, okay, I know where they're at. And the minute that you know where they're at, it tells you what to do. How many staff meetings did I sit in that I said, 
and that people said, this person's not motivated, I can't help them. They're not ready for change. We just need to, you know, let them go out. We need to kick them out of the program. We need to whatever. Well, that gives workers, that gives the people who are involved in helping um, an excuse to back out. And maybe, I teach people, maybe it's because you don't have the will or the skill to say, okay, they're in pre-contemplation. Now that means I need to respond in this way. Okay? Okay. All right, so let's talk um, a little bit about motivational interviewing. And motivational interviewing um, is really about waking up that internal motivation. And this is what I love about motivational interviewing is because if you're in small group, if you're living in relationship with people in your lives that are trying to make changes, motivational interviewing is very relational and it's exactly what we want to do. We want to wake up their own internal motivation because anybody ever got worn out because you were trying to be somebody else's motivation? Yeah. Like you were trying to convince them, like this is the right thing to do, you can do this, these are all the reasons you should do this. Um, That's exhausting. And that's honestly, in my field, why a lot of people burn out because they take on the responsibility to create motivation for people. And um, what motivational interviewing is doing is responding to people in a way that they wake up their own internal motivation, okay? And so um, you start um, evoking as a word. Evoke is a big word um, in MI. And I love, I looked up um, the definition. I don't want to give all my goods away. By the way, (laughs) this is the upside of being an old person. James, sorry, um, is, uh, you know, I'm not used to, I'm, well, I'm used to PowerPoints, but um, I'm like, okay, I'm old. We never had PowerPoints when I was young, so we'll just fly with it. So um, I'm assuming you're like lots younger than I am, but okay. So um, what is evoking? And um, evoking, um, I'm going to find my definition here because I think it is really powerful and I want you guys to hear this. Um, okay, so you look it up, and this is, when you think about the spirit of MI, and this is what MI is all about, evoking is to call forth, is to make appear, is to summon into action, is to bring to existence, it's call to mind. That's what evoking is, and that's the whole spirit uh, of MI. Um, the spirit of MI is being a facilitator, not a fixer. It's exhausting to be a fixer. And um, we could probably do a whole session on sometimes, and I could do it well because I've struggled with this, is feeling really great because I helped fix somebody. You know, that, there came a point in my career that I had to deal with that very personally because it was not going in good places. Because when somebody fell apart, then I took that personally too. Okay? Um, but we are facilitators, not fixers. The spirit of MI, which is really important, because you're going to deliver all this knowledge in, with this spirit. It's, you're collaborating with the people that are in small group. Because remember, it's relational. It's a partnership. You're not authoritarian. You're not telling them, Like, you need to do this, and this is what you need to do. It's like we're all in this thing of life together, 
And so we're collaborating, and it's a partnership, okay? Um, it's also um, one of the spirits um, is um, evoking, but also autonomy, that they have the ability to make these changes. You want autonomy for those folks, because if not, then they'll need you for the rest of their lives <laughs> to maintain that change, okay? Um, and then compassion, motivational interviewing, and stages of change is about compassion. Um, if you look on your sheets, okay, by the way, that, that was level one. So if you walk out of here and all you know is those stages of change, if that's it, and you can sit in your group and you can sit, you can hear somebody talking and you're like, they're not even thinking about making a change. Doesn't that right there tell you like what your approach is going to be with them? Okay. If they're way in pros and cons, you're like, ah, they're in contemplation. They're, com- they're contemplating whether to make a change or not. So that then starts to tell you how to respond, right? So even if all you do is understand those stages of change, you're going to sit in group and look at things differently. Okay? Hopefully, if you remember this. You, know, you can always fold this up and put it in your Bible. And just pull it out and look at it once in a while before group. If somebody's really struggling with the behavior, get this out and look at it. This is like the the most compact cheat sheet I could come up with for um, some MI skills and and stages of change. But we're going to move to the second level. So the second level is the second column where it says the goal. And when you look at motivational interviewing and the spirit of motivational interviewing, um, you start looking at... If I understand that in pre-contemplation that the goal is just to get them to think about the change, it's to create ambivalence. And so, like when this girl in in jail, when I said, well, tell me about some of the bad. I'm hearing there's a lot of good. Tell me about some of the bad. And she starts talking about the bad. I could see it in her brain. There was starting some ambivalence to come. And um, that means that she's moving to contemplation, okay? So if I know that's the goal, I can shoot towards that, okay? Um, In contemplation, you're going to explore and resolve contemplation. Like you may even give them the assignment of um, saying, okay, this week I want you to write down the benefits of changing and the downside of changing. Because remember, there's always loss involved with changing. So... Um, when kids ran away and were on the street, there's lot, when they quit running away, there's loss connected with that. Anybody want to guess what loss is connected? Say again. Independence. Yep. Excitement. Anybody? I, I grew up in Whitewater, Kansas. Kind of blink, you miss it. Um, no stoplights. And I remember coming to college and being in my little 62 Chevy 2 and driving around Wichita at night with all the lights and just the ba-bump, 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 you know, like the excitement was big, right? So anytime somebody comes into your group um, and they're changing, there's probably a loss connected to that. When I eat better, there's a loss connected to that. Chocolate. <laughs> okay? All right? Um, so you're going to explore the upsides and the downsides. Another tool is they call it um, um, the ruler. Um, there's another name for it, and I can't remember what it is. Anyway, but you can ask. I had a kid involved. I picked her up off of 
um, Broadway several times involved in trafficking, and she'd be beat up. And I swear, everything she owned was in a Dylan's bag. Everything she owned. Um, And I said, so tell me. I want to say Susie. Um, We're walking back. Got her some food. We're getting some sweats and some emergency food supplies and stuff like that. Um, So I said, if you are like one being, I am not interested in making changes in my life at all, at all. Um, And 10 being, I got to change. I can't do this anymore. Where would you be like on a scale from one to 10? She goes, an eight. I'm an eight. Ah, so I can tell that you're pretty pretty motivated. Um, And I say, okay, so on a scale from one to 10, like I know I can totally change. 10 being, I know I can totally change. I got this. I know how. I know how to do it. And one being, I want to change, but I got no idea how to change. Where are you at? She said a two. So what did that just tell you? told you exactly she needed to learn skills, right? She needed somebody to say, how do I make this happen? The motivation was there. And by the way, you can also move and say, so you're at an eight. What would take you to a 10? What's keeping you at an eight instead of a 10? Okay, so there are some of these tools that you can use um, that, and I would love to you know, give those to any of you guys um, if you want them, but they're pretty easy uh, to remember. So preparation, the goal is um, if somebody's preparing for a change, they're talking about change, I want to make it, I want to leave, say, don't just say great and say good luck. Um, Your job is to say, okay, how are you going to do that specifically? What do you want to do this week? How are you going to get ready for that change this week? Let's write down three things. You don't have to sit down and say, have this four-page case plan about how to change. You can say, what's three things that will move you and get you ready for that change? So if the guy's moving out of the girlfriend's house, um, how does he do that? How does he tell her? How does he make sure that, because he probably cares about her? How does he make sure that, you know, he's not leaving her high and dry? Um, So how is he going to do that? Okay. The goals um, under action is they actually make the change. The goal under maintenance is they stick to it, that they maintain and integrate it, that change into their regular life. The change becomes their new normal. Now it would be weird for them um, to think about going back to whatever they were doing. Okay, that's a good thing. And does anybody know the, the number of days it takes for a habit to become the new normal? 21, 28 days, you know, so, but it's, it's several weeks. So if somebody's trying to change the habit of having devotions, guys, you could do this in devotions. If we walk into a small group and um, people are like, I don't have devotions. I don't know what the big deal is. I come to group. I go to church. I listen to Caleb. You know, I don't, you know, I don't have devotions. Well, if they say that, what stage are they in? Pre-contemplation, right? Seeing no need to have devotions. So um, when you start moving into contemplation, talking about even in your group, you could say you, you don't want to put them on blast, but just to say, what, what are, guys, what are some things that we get out of devotions? What are devotions for you? And so, like, for me, even talking to somebody about having devotions, sometimes I'll just open up my Bible, which might scare some of you because I have things written in there. And I talked about this week in training with somebody about self-care. 
and talking about, I said, I'm a person of faith. And I said, the Psalms, I got to use the reorientation and disorientation and reorientation a lot. But there are Psalms that I have written by the Psalms at the worst times of my life where I'm like, God, only you know, only you know right now how bad I feel and what's going on inside of me. So when somebody can see that, when you share, when you have group members sharing in your group about the specialness of, of group time, I mean, I mean, of devotion time, of spending time with Jesus, you may have just moved into contemplation because they may walk out of there going, huh. Or maybe they go home and read something um, and, they, and it really resonates. The Holy Spirit really talks to them through there. And so they may be thinking, yes, I think I do need to get up an hour earlier every morning, okay? Um, when you look at, I think one of the really important ones to look at is when there is a recurrence or a relapse, um, look at the goal. Because that tells you how to not become cynical. It tells you how to, uh, to re-engage and not to overreact and say, I'm so tired of the, you know? You show up and you say, okay, let's sit down. You engage in them because remember, MI and stages of change are very relational. And you say, how are you doing? Are you okay? I know you had a lot invested in this, and I know you worked very hard, and this has got to be tough. Are you okay? Um, One of the things when kids would walk in, if they were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing out on the street or something they thought that we would, quote, disapprove of, my best response to them, they would either come in very defensive, and you could tell because they'd start kind of beating everybody up verbally, you know? And I would just pull them into my office, and I'm like, are you okay? I noticed that this, 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 and this. And maybe we'd even heard out on the street that they were doing something or something. Um, You open the door for them to say, I blew it, Risa. I blew it. Okay? Um, And if that's handled, like we had a kid who came back in and had just gotten out of jail. And he came in and he was drunk. In the drop-in center, drunk. And he comes in and um, I said, hey, Joe, can I talk to you for a minute? We go back. And I'm like, are you okay? I'm really hungry. Well, let's get you some food. And um, I said, I can tell you're under the influence right now. How can you tell I'm under the influence? And I said, well... I said, I could smell it. And I said, Joe, I know you because you're going to be relational. And um, I said, we've got to know each other for a long time, haven't we? And when you're under the influence, you cuss a lot, don't you? And he smiles and he goes, yeah, I do. And, and I just looked at him and I said, how satisfied are you with the direction of your life right now? That's the only question I asked. And he took on over the conversation and started talking. And he says, I think I need to call my drug and alcohol counselor. So if you look back at the spirit of MI, and it was a partnership, right? It, it was evoking. It was compassion. Now, does it always turn out that way? No, it doesn't, okay? Um, okay, so let's move on. That was number two. That, you, that was your challenge by choice number two. So challenge number one at the level one is if you understand the stages of change. The second level is if I understand the goal of that, I now know that in group, like, oh, man, we're at pre-contemplation. This is my goal. I'm just trying to get to here. I'm not trying to get them to integrate the change into their life when they're still at contemplation, okay? Even though I will tell you, I'm going to preface this by saying, does God sometimes just, um, for some reason, take away an addiction? Like just, yeah. 
But most of the time, it's a transition. It's, a, it's changes. It's the work. And God really, in my life, um, really takes that opportunity to woo me into relationship and to bond with me through that and for me to grow up in him and that. So I think in the process of change, there's great um, comfort and there's great relationship that can happen with people and with God. Um, if you look at the third row, this is probably the most concrete. So this is, this is your huge challenge, okay, um, is to look at the third row. Um, and that is, um, it tells you very specifically what tasks you can do. So if you want to know, and I will tell you, um, the hardest parts are obviously pre-contemplation and contemplation. Because somebody's trying to get a commitment for a change, Okay. Part of the reason I love this is because street outreach, um, that's all we were doing most times in the drop-in center. Because once they got to action, and they were going somewhere else. They were moving in transitional living or, or whatever else. You guys will get the pleasure of walking with those people in group and watching that process um, happen, okay? So if you look at this, in um, italicized um, the questions, those are very specific questions. I just tried to pick a few questions that you might have um, in kind of in your toolbox um, about what would get them to start thinking, okay? But the tasks are on top of that. So like for pre-contemplation, develop relationship. Be happy in, in a drop-in center, in group. Um, Brenda's very good at this in group. Somebody walks in the door, she's very welcoming. She's very investing in their lives. She, I notice she notices what they say one week and she'll ask them about it the next week. That's how you develop relationship in group. You guys, River does that very well. People come in and they feel loved and cared about, okay? Um, in this stage, you're also going to just do awareness. So like a pre-contemplation question for group to say, if they bring something up, but you can tell they're not really, well, let's see what the Bible says about that. What, do you, what, what does the Bible say? And just starting to bring that, because once they start looking at that, sometimes that starts to get them into contemplation. Um, one of the things I look at, how would you know? What would happen that would tell you? So the guy's living with his girlfriend, uh, this may or may not, I'll, I'll go to alcohol, this will be an easier one. Um, living with his girlfriend, I mean, sorry, <laughs> I'm stuck on living with his girlfriend. Um, drinking and using to say, you know, I drink and yes, I get drunk at night, but I show up for work every day. I mean, we have a lot, there's a lot of working alcoholics or, or working drug addicts. And they say, well, what would have to happen in order for you to say, ah, I can't do this anymore? Pornography. I had a kid in group the other day tell me, like, I know, I know all that stuff about pornography, but I know how to control it with me. See, that was resistance. So at that point, it was my job to then kind of step away from that. Um, But you can ask questions. How would you know it would be a problem? Like, what would have to happen in your life that it would become a problem? That's kind of what I did with the girl in jail. And remember when she then said, um, well, if I got kidnapped, and she stopped herself in mid-sentence because she knew she'd been kidnapped, that provides an aha moment for that person. And then they start internally twisting inside, going, okay, now I have a conflict between what I want out of my life and my goals and my dreams and my relationship with God and the person I want to be and the parent I want to be and my current behavior. The minute that you've done that, you have developed discrepancy. And um, that's one of the... um, Oh, I'll put it up here. 
That's one of the goals, one of the principles um, is developing discrepancy, okay? Um, and so if you look at these, these are the four principles um, of motivational interviewing. There's lots of principles. These are four of them. And these are some basic skills. Christy, are you going to kill me if I put a post-it note on the piano? Okay. Um, um, these are some basic skills, and I know we're um, running close to time, but if you look on here, all these questions and all these tasks kind of fit into these principles. Um, just to kind of reinforce the whole uh, rolling with resistance and responding in a way that's compassionate and um, given autonomy, I thought this was really good. I found this in a place that MI is like dancing instead of wrestling. MI, motivational interviewing, is like guiding instead of directing. MI is tapping instead of pulling. Okay? And MI is consulting instead of instructing. So remember, it really is that partnership, that collaboration. Because you're waking something up inside of them that they then do those things for themselves. And if you look at these questions at every stage um, and these tasks, then that is, if you decide to jump over here, and even if you only learn one or two questions in each stage, um, then when somebody is in contemplating, so you can say, learn one of them. So what's holding you back right now? You know, you, you've talked about the, the ups and the downs. So what's keeping you from making that change? And the guy with his girlfriend may say, I don't want to hurt her. She can't afford to pay the rent by herself. And then you just moved into preparation because if he really wants to move and he wants to move out of that house, then you start strategizing. So how do we do all those things? How do we take care of all those details? right? When he jumps in and he's ready to make that change. Okay. So I hope, um, I'm looking at my notes to see if I missed anything. Um, I will tell you what MI is not. It's not being authoritarian. It's not confronting. It's not condemning. It's not arguing and it's not proving you're right. The minute that you move into that, and I'm not going to say, um, that there's not a time to say, look, Here's the deal, okay? I'm talking about these are styles and techniques. There is times, there are times at the drop-in center, I'm like, you better slow you roll because this is not going to happen here. There are times that you have to lay down the law. Um, And if you're really good at MI and stages of change, you know when it's time to move out of that. But you will be tempted to move out right before the breakthrough comes, okay? Um, so hopefully this will help you in um, a small group. Any parting shots or words of wisdom, as Dave Mitchell would say? I kind of just, Karen would say that I just took a fire hose and put it to your mouth. So um, if you guys have questions, um, please get with me. Um, I would love to help in any way we can. So. We said that was-